Great. Well, um, last week we did a message um, on what is the Bible. We're just doing a little bit of a journey into, um, well, over the last term we did a journey on spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, uh, and spiritual formation. How do we follow Jesus? What are some of the, the practices that Jesus uh, took on? Um, and how can we do those as well? And so this morning we're looking at um, how to read the Bible. Um, but the, the, uh, the point of what we've been covering over the last few weeks or, or last term is this, is that if we want to adopt the life of Jesus, then we also have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And so, um, so there's, we've, we looked at all sorts of different spiritual practices, but this week we're looking at how to read the Bible. And uh, so this is going to be really interesting, really good. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and so if we pick up um, where we were last week, and if we pick up on the whole idea of the critical journey, uh, depending on what stage of apprenticeship we are to Jesus, will actually um, have a lot to do with how we engage with the Bible. So if you, for those of you that weren't here, um, and for those of you that were, you'll remember that uh, at stage two, a big part of our journey is the start of our discipleship journey, and, we, and, and a big part of that is the sort of need to know right and wrong. And so at stage two, if you get stuck at stage two, you become uh, very concerned with uh, putting everyone and everything in their right place. There's a real strong sense of, I need to make sure that everyone knows what's right and wrong. Um, and so that's at stage two. Now, if you're at stage two, you're going to engage with the Bible a little bit like that. You're going to see it as, I, I need to figure out what's right and wrong. I need to, uh, you know, do all of that sort of stuff. And, and that's um, important. That's an important part of the journey. But if we get stuck there, we'll always engage with the Bible like that, and we won't ever move on. Um, and so, uh, but at stage five, when we're really moving on, um, at this stage, you're no longer trying to make the Bible answer questions. Um, sometimes we actually try to, to make the Bible answer questions that it's not actually trying to answer. And, um, and so at stage five, the primary motivation is actually union with Jesus. It's actually union with Jesus. You know, so the Bible is the divine and human word that tells the truth about Jesus. And so at stage five, we're really starting to engage with the Bible as, as the source of how we, how we um, grow in our, in our relationship with Jesus. And so union with Jesus is um, the primary motivation. Um, so the Bible is a collection of books written by a collection of authors who are actually in conversation with one another. And so we find the truth, who is Jesus, as we listen and tune into the conversation. And so as we tune into the conversation that the authors are having within themselves, we find the truth, and that, that is Jesus. And so, uh, uh, so as we um, approach the Bible and how we engage with the Bible, there's sort of two purposes that I want to cover this morning, um, or, or two things that we need to consider as we think about how do we read the Bible, and they, they are study and meditation. So study and meditation. Um, so when we, when we engage with Scripture as meditation, it's an approach to letting the Word of God dwell in us richly, as, as Paul said in Colossians. And, and it gives us the opportunity to hear God speak to us through His written Word. And, and we know, uh, what I said last week, the, the Bible is the written Word of God, which ultimately leads us to the, the Word of God in person, and His name is Jesus. 
In Psalm 119, verse 15, it says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. And so the Hebrew word for meditate is to ponder or converse with oneself, to utter, to pray, to speak, to talk. And and so to meditate on Scripture is to ponder God's words, to talk about them, to think about them, and to dwell on them. And so um, by meditation, I don't mean meditation like like, uh, other Eastern religions, Um, but rather actually spending time dwelling on specific passages or verses with the intent of allowing the Holy Spirit to actually imprint the Scriptures on our heart. So in other Eastern uh, religions, the idea of meditation is to empty the mind, whereas when we approach Scripture with meditation, the idea is to fill our mind with the truth of who God is and who God says we are. And so then we've also got study. So we've got meditation and then we've got study. So study is the, uh, the study of Scripture is the main means of actually understanding the meaning of Scripture. And so meditation helps us with worship. It helps imprint the Scripture on our heart. But if we just engage with meditation without study, uh, we're a lot less likely to actually understand the correct meaning of what we're meditating on. And so they actually need to go hand in hand. There are two practices that we actually need to engage in hand in hand as we engage with Scripture. Um, so the, um, so the uh, Jewish people would um, engage with Scripture uh, with this thing that they called parties. Um, and so uh, the parties is four ways of, or four levels of engaging with Scripture. And so the first one is Peshat, which is surface or the straight or literal and contextual meaning. Right, so that's just the straight, literal um, reading of, of the Scripture. Um, but it's really, really important to understand that they, when they talk about that, they're not just talking about reading um, the... But obviously, we have English Bibles. Uh, they are engaging with Scripture in the original language. So they understand the meanings of the words. They understand the culture. And so when, when it talks about a literal reading, it's actually the context, the cultural context the language understanding, and so it's not just a straight reading of the English Bible, but it is the literal surface uh, level. The next level was remez, and so that talks about hints or or the deep, uh, hidden or symbolic meaning beyond just the literal sense. And then there's derash, um, which means to inquire or seek, and so it's the comparative meaning as given through similar occurrences. Um, So we talked um, last week about the Bible being filled of themes and plots and narrative hyperlinks, and so that's when we start to discover that there are are themes right throughout the Scriptures, there are plots right throughout the Scriptures, and we can actually trace them right through. Um, I've been doing a lot of study on the, um, the parable of the Good Father, and I've discovered that discovered, discovered, discovered that there are right throughout the Bible this theme of brotherly conflict, right throughout Scripture. Um, and and Jesus, when Jesus shares the parable of, most commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son, but it's actually really the parable about the good father. Um, but when, when Jesus is sharing this parable, the, the hearers would have been going right back to the, to the Cain and Abel story, to the Jacob and Esau story. They, they would have been linking all of these and, and understanding those ideas. Um, when Jesus, uh, when he was on the cross and he said, my father, why have you forsaken me? He is quoting from uh, Psalm 22 and, and the original hearers would have known that he was talking about the whole psalm. 
not just that one verse. He was talking about the whole psalm, and when we follow the whole psalm, we actually see that the Father hadn't forsaken him, and it's brilliant. So we need to understand the context and the deeper meanings and the themes and plots that are going through. And the last one is, is sod. Um, or it's actually pronounced with a long O, so sod, I think, something like that. <laughs> sod, yeah, like that. You got it? <laughs> so this is the secret or the mystery or the, the mystical meaning as given through the inspiration or revelation. So this is, you know, what is the Holy Spirit saying in this moment through the Scripture? Um, so two other ways that, that we can engage with Scripture um, or a good way to study Scripture is with exegesis and hermeneutics. We're on a bit of a theology lesson this morning. Is that okay? Well, we need to engage with Scripture well, eh? Um, so exegesis, exegesis or hermeneutics. So exegesis is the act of critically interpreting a text and attempt to draw the meaning out. Okay, so exegesis has to do with, um, uh, so it's this idea that the Bible is not written to us, but it is written for us. And so exegesis is about um, understanding the meaning in the original context. So for the original audience, what would they have understood this to mean? Not what do I think it means through my Western 2,000 years on perspective, but what did the original audience understand this to mean? So what does it mean? Um, and so, um, so uh, yeah, so it's the original audience. Um, and hermeneutics is the idea of what's the significance in the here and now. So hermeneutics deals more with how do we actually live this out. And so a Christian commentator once said that hermeneutics are a type of discernment process, ways of mining for God and God's truth. So like other forms of discernment, hermeneutics is a task that's best not done alone, but with a spirit-led community that lives and breathes this biblical word. Right, so how do we live it out? We need to work that out together. Yeah. Um, so when we so when we so one way of putting it with hermeneutics is we might read a part of the, the the Bible story, and we can look at it and say this is part of the story. It's an important part of the story because it's part of the story and it points us to Jesus. But is this actually directive or prescriptive to me in the here and now? Right. So when we look at at the Bible, last week I said that about fifty percent of it is narrative. All right, another, um, I think it's 43% is poetry, and 14% is what they call prose discourse. So that's more instructional. So we're thinking about the letters from Paul. So 14%, a huge percent of that is actually the law, uh, which we now know, you know, that's Old Testament law. And so actually a very small percent of the Bible is actually prose discourse, is actually instructional. And so we need, to, we need to actually look at those passages and say, is this descriptive? Is this describing what happened there and then? And is it relevant to me in the here and now? Or is this prescriptive to me in the here and now? Important things that we need to think about. Um, if you want a good book uh, to read that will help you with this, um, there's a book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. Um, that is a good book to read to help you with that stuff. All right, so um, last week we had a question come in. So um, uh, 
we may not have time for questions this morning, but we can chuck the thing up if someone has some questions. If I don't get to them this morning, we can answer them um, during the week. But last week we had a question um, about divine authorship. I didn't get to um, answer it, but I wanted to have a look at it this morning. Um, so last week we looked at the Bible as the divine and human word that tells the truth. And so had this question that was, um, what are some examples of divine authorship in the Bible? And, and so the first question we need to ask is, um, what do we mean by divine authorship? You know, did, did God's hand like come out of the sky and grab the pen and write on the pages? Um, you know, is he, did he put some people into a trance and then take over their body and then write um, the, the pa- on the pages? Or, or is he like whispering, like dictating? That's a good idea, God. Do you really want me to say that, God? You know, like, like is, it, is that how it's happening? Um, uh, well, I mean, it depends. We, we can't just broad stroke the whole Bible um, with, one, um, with one definition. I think we actually get ourselves into trouble when we do that. Um, but So here's some examples of divine authorship in the Bible. So in, um, in Paul's letter to Timothy, um, Paul describes the, the Scriptures as inspired or God-breathed that they are all profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we know from that, that all scripture is God-breathed. So God has breathed on every part of our Bible. Um, and so we know that, that the Bible is a collection of writings that God has breathed upon and breathed into. He has given life to these scriptures. And, and we know that at certain times, the authors are very aware that they are receiving a word from God and that they are writing a word from God and sharing a word from God, especially in the prophets. You see that language all the time in the prophets. Um, and Peter actually reflects on this and explains it like this in 2 Peter 1. He says, For prophecy never had its origins in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And God says to Isaiah, in, in um, Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 50, he says, Go now, write on a tablet for them, inscribe it on a scroll, that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. And you see that kind of language all through the prophets. So they're very aware that God is speaking to them a word for God's people. Um, and, and so, um, and what also gives um, added divine authority to these prophecies is the fulfillment of them. You know, we've got um, like Micah prophesying the birthplace of Jesus and the fulfillment of that in Jesus. And, you know, uh, hundreds of years later that was fulfilled. The, the prophecies of Daniel, which accurately predicted the coming Messiah and the kingdoms that would rise and fall and the destruction of those kingdoms. You know, there's so many Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled uh, in, in Jesus um, and throughout the Scripture. Um, but also in the New Testament, Paul certainly believed that the word he was sharing was the word of God. In Colossians 1, he said, I became its servant by the commission God gave me to fully proclaim to you the word of God. And and you see him using this type of language all the time. And and then there were other writings like poetry that Jesus referenced as inspired by the Holy Spirit. So in Mark 12, verse 36, Jesus quotes Psalm 110, and he says this, David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to me, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so there's all, this, all these examples of divine authorship of God speaking through people clearly, and they knew that, that what they were receiving was a word from God, and, he, and they were sharing it. And then there are other times where the humanity and the, often the brokenness of humanity is on display through the authors. Psalm 137 is a really good example of that, and we, we don't have time to look at it this morning. 
Um, but we also know that God breathes on these scriptures, that they are useful, that they are, that they, they are needed for us, and, and often because they actually expose the brokenness of humanity. You know, when we look at all the characters in the Bible, um, we need to understand that they are often not good moral examples, but they are good moral mirrors. That in them we actually see our brokenness and we see their journey with God. And we can, we can actually see that as a moral mirror, not a moral example. All right, so I think it's really important when we talk about how to read the Bible is how do we ruin the Bible? How do we ruin the Bible? Because it's possible to ruin the Bible. Um, so it's really easy to ruin the Bible when we take extreme positions. So pretty much like everything in the kingdom, the Bible needs to be held in tension. The kingdom is not an either-or perspective. It's a both-and. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. God is both merciful and just. The kingdom is here but not yet. There, there, are, there are so many tensions in the kingdom. And I, I actually think that's really beautiful. Because it means that, that the kingdom is something that we wrestle with. The kingdom is something that, we, um, that we, you know, we, we can dive deeper into and we can journey with one another through it. That's why hermeneutics needs to be done together, not in isolation. We need to figure out how to live this thing out together, not in isolation. Um, so how do we ruin the Bible? Uh, one way to do it is to paint it with broad strokes or to make it either or. Um, and this morning I want to in particular talk about two um, sort of ideas, two extremes um, that, uh, with how people engage with the Bible. Uh, one would be fundamentalism and the other is liberalism, right? So fundamentalism and liberalism. And I want us to help to understand how do we actually um, define those and understand those. Uh, someone once said that a half-truth made a whole truth is no truth. Yeah, a half-truth made a whole truth is no truth. Now, uh, imagine at this end, I wish I had signs, but imagine at this end is fundamentalism, this end is liberalism. Um, all of us in this room would probably find ourselves at some point on this scale. Um, I'm going to stand in the middle, all right? Jesus is in the middle. Um, and so we might say things like uh, the fundament fundamental uh, understanding of Scripture is that it's literal. And we'll put, so we'll put literal here, and then we might say that uh, liberal, uh, liberal people think that it's all a metaphor. Uh, I think that it is really unhelpful terms, really, really unhelpful terms, because, I mean, uh, the Bible is full of literal uh, language and is full of symbolic and apocalyptic language. Um, I mean, you've got Daniel who's using symbolic and apocalyptic language to prophesy a literal future. We know that Jesus came, yeah, a literal future. And then you've got Jesus who's using symbolic uh, language to describe spiritual truth with the parables. And so, so that is actually unhelpful language to say that, well, these people just believe it literally and these people were just metaphor. Um, I've got a, um, a funny meme. Have, can we chuck that up here? Here we go. Here we go, Simba, and uh, what's his dad's name? Mufasa. You remember this from the, we take the Bible literally, but what's that shadowy place over there? Well, that's obviously symbolic. You know, like, like sometimes we, we, you know, there's, anyway. Uh, the other, other language we might use here is to say that um, fundamentalists are conservative and that, um, that liberals are progressive. 
Um, I think that's unhelpful language as well, because I think you've got people who have real conservative values that are progressive in their th theology, and then people who are progressive in their theology that have conservative values. Unhelpful terms, I think, uh, to talk about it. Some people might say that fundamentalists overemphasize the divine aspect of the Word of God, and liberalists uh, overemphasize the human aspect of the Word of God. I think also unhelpful terms, uh, you know, because... I, I just don't know if that's helpful. Uh, <laughs> all right, so for us to understand the difference between fundamentalism and liberalism, we un need to understand dogma, doctrine, and opinion. Right, dogma, doctrine, and opinion. So dogma is this. Dogma is the essentials of our faith. And so we have the creeds that are really important to help us um, navigate what are the essentials of our faith. We've got the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, um, Athanasius' Creeds. There's, there's uh, a, a number of creeds that we would say are central to what we believe. They are, they are things that should be unchanging in our belief about who God is and who we are. Um, so they cover important things like the Trinity, the deity of Jesus, the judgment, the resurrection of Jesus, and the final resurrection when Jesus returns again. Um, you know, there's all of these fundamental things that we actually need to hold on to as, as truth. Um, so we have a, a statement of faith as a church that aligns with those creeds. Um, and so, so that's, that's dogma, that, that's important. Um, doctrine has more to do with how. How do we actually live this thing out? And so doctrines are things that might be important to certain churches or denominations. Um, so a doctrine for us here at Awaken would be that the gifts of the Spirit are for today, that healing is for today. And so that would be something that dictates how we live out our Christian faith, and that's important to us. Now, there are other churches that would say the gifts of the Spirit are not for today. Uh, are they still believers? Yes. Are they still Christians? Yes. But we would differ on that doctrine. Now, someone might come to our church and say, uh, Michael, I don't believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. And I'll say, that's awesome, I love you. Um, and I'll say, but I still want to be a part of your church. And I've had this, I'll literally say this, that's awesome, you're more than welcome here. We're up on our sign it says everyone belongs. Um, but you will find it very uncomfortable. And... Um, because we do things quite differently than maybe you're used to. And so, so we talk about those in, in those sorts of terms, all right? Uh, and then the other, the other thing is opinion. Um, and there are all sorts of things in the Bible that we could have all sorts of opinions about. Um, they are not essential to our faith. And so, uh, you know, a, a big one there is obviously end times theology, where there's lots of different ideas about that. And, um, and we can have different opinions and love each other and, and get along. Um, so, so that's what we need to understand. There's a, a great quote that I can't find who actually said it. Lots of people say it was John Wesley, others say it was Augustine. Um, but it's this, that in essentials, unity. So in the important things, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. All right? Um, I think the Eastern Orthodox have a helpful analogy here as well. They talk about, um, about the truth being a stool, um, not stooled, but a stool. There's a big difference. Um, uh, so <laughs> a three-legged a three stool, um, and so they say that, that one leg on the stool are the scriptures, 
Uh, another leg on the stool is the, the is church tradition, or you know, they're mainly talking about the creeds here. Uh, what what have the the church fathers said about this? Um, and then the other leg on the stool is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they say if we if we have those three in in equal uh, length or equal authority, uh, then then our stool is stable. But if we take, you know, if, we, if one's longer, if we overemphasize one more than the other, then our stool becomes unsafe, it becomes unstable. Or if you take one out altogether, then um, who knows, that's not a stool that you can sit on. All right, so, so I've explained all those things to help us with this idea. So fundamentalism is where opinion and doctrine is pushed all the way over to dogma. All right, and they become very dogmatic about things that actually aren't uh, important. Well, I'm not going to say important, but actually aren't. They're actually things that are opinion or actually things that have to do with how do we live this out, and they push them to dogma. Um, and liberalism is where they take things that are actually really important and then push them all the way to opinion. All right, and it could be on any one of those scales that we find uh, liberalism or fundamentalism, all right? Um, it's my opinion, and I grew up in probably what I would describe as a fundamentalist church, okay? Um, at this end, fundamentalism is where you have the most misuse and abuse of the Bible. Not at the liberal end. They, they, they are so loose with it that it, it becomes uh, all about opinion. We can have all sorts of ideas. But at fundam the fundamentalism I... Uh, end of the spectrum is where there is most use and misuse, of, sorry, abuse and misuse of the Bible. Why? Because they use the Bible to control and manipulate people, right? And that is never what the Bible was for. I heard someone say recently that the difference between religion and fundamentalist religion is existential humility. So most cults are very dogmatic about certain things, but they are also quite liberal about really important things like the Trinity. We're doing all right? Is this helpful? Don't know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, I love this thought by, from Shane Willard. He said, if you want to ruin the Bible, then speak about it statically. Right? The Bible is not a static book. So using terms like God wrote the Bible is actually not helpful. Or things like, I just believe the Bible. It's talking about the Bible statically. Um, you know, I understand what you're trying to say, it's just not helpful language. Um, and, I mean, if we took that logic, I just believe the Bible. If we took that logic, and I've heard people say things like, I just, you know, a, a young guy who just says, I just want a biblical wife. I just want a biblical wife. Um, you know, that could mean anything from the Proverbs 33 perfect wife, woman, who I think that's probably more about wisdom than it is about a, a particular person. But uh, So Proverbs 33, the perfect woman, uh, right through um, to J.L., um, who killed Caesarea uh, by jamming a tent peg through his temple. Um, which biblical wife do you want? You know, like, like there's some real extremes here. Um, and so using terms like that is just probably not that helpful. I, I think a better approach in language would be to say that we want to be faithful to the scripture, that we want to be faithful to the Bible. Um, so the Bible is not static. It's not a static record of God. It's the progressive revelation of the word of God. Right, so this word inspired means God breathed. And so it's like God, um, he, he has breathed life 
into and upon his word. Um, but if we look in the Bible, what is the first thing that God breathed life into? Us. He breathed life into you. He breathed life into you. So a bunch of dirt breathed on by God is now inspired. The human authors were inspired. You are inspired. Now something no longer has life when it is the opposite to inspired, yeah? The, it, is, it has what? Expired, yeah? It no longer has breath, so it is expired. And who knows that the Bible has not expired? Yeah, 2,000 years on from Jesus, the church is still alive, and well, the Word of God is alive and active. You know, Hebrews 4 verse 12, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It still penetrates to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It still judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. The Scriptures, the Bible is still very much alive. It has not expired. Amen? So the Bible is not static, it is living, it is the living, breathing word of God, it is a continuous story of God at work in our world. Now I want to add a little caveat here that that the Bible was the breathed upon word of God, um, but it needs to be connected to the breathed, breathed upon people of God. When it is not connected to the breathed upon people of God, then it can, you know, it can be misused and abused, it can be used for the wrong reasons. So listen, the the Bible is inspired. Life has been breathed into it, but you are also inspired. Life has been breathed into you. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he said this, listen, you are our epistle written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is of the heart. Come on, you are epistles. You are letters of God to the world. You are, you are inspired. And the inspired word of God has to be connected to the inspired people of God so that the kingdom of God is demonstrated in our world. It has to be connected. Think about this. There could be a Bible in every hotel room in the city, but unless those, those inspired words of God are not connected to the inspired people of God in a city, come on, the, the word of God will not get his reward. Come on, the word of God has to be connected to the people of God. Oh, well, I think we need a better amen than that. Come on. <laughs> Everyone's a bit quiet this morning. Come on, here's the point. You may be the only Bible that someone gets to read. You may be the only Bible that someone gets to read. So the Bible is not static. It is the progressive revelation of God told through inspired authors, ultimately leading to the final and definitive word of God, Jesus. All right, I could give you some examples of how the revelation of God progresses through the Old Testament, but I really don't have time, and that's a shame, but it's... it's, um, uh, All right. I'm just going to um, jump to questions. There's one question from last week that I, that I didn't get a chance to answer. Um, so I want to answer that, and then, um, then, we'll, then we'll finish. All right? Okay. Um, so the question that came in last week was this. Um, is the King James Version the most accurate 
um, translation. All right, um, so um, there's lots of different translations. Um, is the King James the most accurate? So um, to, to answer that, we need to understand uh, how translations are done. So there's word-for-word uh, word, word translations, thought-for-thought thought translations, and then paraphrase. Okay, so a word-for-word word translation would be like the NASB, the ESV, uh, the Young's Literal Translation, which is one of my personal favorites, um, and the King James Version is a word-for-word word translation. Then you've got um, thought-for-thought, thought for thought, which would be the NIV, the NLT, um, then paraphrase would be something like the message. Um, all right, so is the King James the most accurate? Um, it is a word-for-word word translation, um, but I guess um, some people would think that it's the most accurate, lots of different reasons they might think it's the most accurate, um, but the King James Version was translated in 1611. It wasn't the first English translation, um, and when they translated the King James Version, they translated it from the Textus, textus Rectus, um, which was a, a, a collection of the writings of Scripture, and they had four copies of the Textus Rectus. Uh, what they did not have was all of the Scriptures. At that point, they didn't have all of the Scriptures, um, and so it was missing some. So the King James Version um, actually has some of it is translated from the Latin Vulgate, which is a Latin translation of, um, of the Scriptures. So, um, so some people would say, uh, you know, the modern translations are missing verses. Has anyone seen that on, you know, Facebook? Someone share, yeah. So I had someone uh, share that recently to Facebook, uh, and they said, the NIV is missing all of these verses. And I said, missing from what? And they said, well, the Bible. And I'm like, okay, what? what do you mean by the Bible? And they're like, well, of course, the King James Version. It's, it's the original Bible. And I'm like, mm, no, it's not. not. It's not the first English translation. Um, and so when they, um, and so one of the arguments would be that because it's the closest to Jesus, which it's not, um, that it would be the most accurate. Um, that, that argument falls apart when you understand how translation works. So the, the four copies of the Textus Rectus are, are actually reasonably new copies. Uh, they now have 5,000 copies of the scriptures because they've found a whole lot more, especially when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what they discovered is they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls manuscripts, um, and they've now got the complete scriptures, and they found that the very earliest ones actually didn't have those verses. So it's not that the NIV is missing verses, it's actually that they are not found in the original manuscripts. So that's why um, newer translations are actually generally probably more accurate. Um, some people um, like the King James Version because they like the King James Version. That's great, my dad loves the King James Version. Um, David, is a, you love the King James Version, don't you? Um, but, uh, and it's a good version. No, there's no problem with it. It's just to say that it is the most accurate is actually just actually not, um, not true. Um, but it's a good version. And so I, ho I hope that helps, but when we understand how translation works, we, we can see that um, probably the most accurate translation is probably the ESV um, that we have right now. All right. Um, the music team can come. That would be great. And I just want to finish with a final thought. Are we doing all right? Cool. Music team, you guys can come up.
All right, so I think the primary goal of the Bible is to, is to point us to Jesus. We've covered that. The primary goal is to point us to Jesus. Union with Christ is what, uh, what we are all about when we, when we come to the Scriptures. Um, but I, I think the outworking of the Bible in our lives sh- should look like wisdom. All right, so um, in the very first, uh, in the first story of the Bible, the start of the, of the Bible, we have, um, you know, the, the fall in Genesis. So we've got uh, Adam and Eve who, who take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and we know that, um, you know, that, that didn't go well. Um, and, but have you ever thought, why didn't God want them to know right and wrong? Why didn't, why didn't he want them to know good and evil? And you can actually see that the serpent in the garden actually uses that against Eve. You know, he almost says, oh, God's withholding stuff from you. He doesn't want you to know everything. He's actually withholding stuff from you. Um, and, and so last week I was in the car with Israel and we, we, were, um, we were driving uh, to Wellington and in the car. And Israel goes, hey, Dad, what is a portion? And I'm like, Oh, yeah, no, a portion is um, a part of something. So, you know, like when you have a pizza um, and you take a piece, you've taken a portion of the pizza. And then he goes, oh, okay. Why does Jacinda want to pass a law that, no one, that, that people can have a portion? <laughs> I'm like, ah, ah, right, okay. Not a portion, you're talking about abortion. And he goes, yeah, oh, right, okay, what's that then? And, and so I'm like in my dad thing going, uh, should I tell him about this right now? Is he too young? You know, all of that sort of stuff's going through my head. Luckily for me, wisdom was in the car. My mum was there. <laughs> and she says, Israel, let me tell you a story. She says, one day there was a man and his son, and they were on the train, and they were heading to Wellington, and the son says to the dad, Dad, what's abortion? And the dad says to the son, I'll tell you, when we get to the train station, we're going to get out. I'm going to put my luggage, my my bag on the ground. If you can pick up the bag and carry it to the end of the train station, I'll tell you what abortion is. And the little boy tried to pick it up, and he couldn't pick it up. He couldn't carry it. And so the the dad says to the son, Son, sometimes there are things that are just too big for you to carry. And knowing the, the knowledge of that is something that's too big for you to carry right now. And, I was, and, I, and he goes, oh, that makes sense. Thanks. And I'm like, Phew. <laughs> um, Invite mum around for the birds and the bees talk. What do you reckon? <laughs> but the, the point is this, is that, is that knowledge is sometimes too big for us to carry. I'm, I, I believe that, that it wasn't that God was wanting to withhold knowledge from Adam and Eve. It's just that they weren't mature enough yet to carry it well. Because when you look throughout the Bible, it continually points us to wisdom. And wisdom is the ability to pl- apply knowledge. See, I believe that God is maturing humanity through wisdom and that the story of the garden is a constant reminder that when we choose our own wills and ways, we try to carry things we weren't designed to carry. And so instead of working with God, we work against God. Instead of restoring and partnering with him to restore, we actually end up destroying. 
See, who knows that someone can be right but also horribly wrong? See, being right has to do with what I know. Wisdom has to do with how I see, live, and act in the world. And every time we open the Bible, it's an invitation to see and to hear the kingdom of heaven and then to know how to apply it in our world. See, it's one thing to know right and wrong. It's an entirely different thing to know how to apply it. I think a really humorous thing, I don't know if you've ever read Proverbs 26, but verse four says this, do not answer a fool according to his folly or you yourself will be like him. Verse five says, answer a fool according to his folly lest he becomes wise in his own eyes. So which is it? Do we answer them or do we not answer them? Uh, I, I think the Bible actually gives us some tensions in life for us actually to wrestle with. And it's not so much about being right or wrong, but it's about knowing how to apply the knowledge that we have and the knowledge that God has given us. And so instead of searching the Bible for right and wrong all the time, if we search the scripture for wisdom, I think there would be a lot better way to live. So every time we open the word, we should come to it prayerfully asking, Father, open my eyes to see what you see. Father, open my ears to hear what you're saying. Father, open my heart to feel what you feel. And Father, open my hands to receive what you're giving. See, this is how we read the Bible. And it will enrich you bring life to you it will set you on a course that is guided by him it will bring wisdom into your world so that you know how to deal with situations and circumstances that come up against us but search the word for wisdom amen why don't we stand this morning Father, we thank you. We thank you for your written word. We thank you that it is alive, that it is active. We thank you that it has not expired. We thank you that every time we open your word, it's like you breathe again. And sometimes, even though we know we are the inspired and breathed upon people of God, that when we have entered into your kingdom, that we are breathed upon, that we sometimes we get expired. We lose our breath and we lose our way and we, we just need to be refreshed in your word. And I thank you that every time we open it, it is an invitation for you to breathe upon us again. we thank you for wisdom. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are. We thank you that you are the Word of God in person. And we, we as a church are just, man, we're just so committed to just following after you, Jesus. We thank you that you are at the center of all theology. We don't want to be to the left or to the right. Jesus, we just want to follow you yeah so we thank you Holy Spirit that you are here right now we thank you that you are moving in our midst yeah thank you God thank you for your presence
thank you that there's no rushing in your presence, no striving in your presence. that the bread reminds us that Jesus is the bread of life. And the Bible was the menu, but he is the meal. And the juice reminds us that his blood was shed for us so that we could enter into new life. Let's sing, let's worship.